Look with me in John 13, 18. As we continue on Palm Sunday, it is a choice each of us have to make whether we're going to be ones that praise Jesus or reject him. And as we look in John chapter 13, we're going to dig into one of the ways, if we're going to follow him, that we need to trust him. John 13. I'm just going to read verse 18. John chapter 13 and verse 18. Jesus is speaking here and he says, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. This is the word of the Lord. I was thinking this week about a man named Tony Locadero, who um, they wrote a book called Prophet of the Sandlots about him because he was uh, he was a baseball scout years ago, and despite the fact that he um, kind of worked in the, in the Midwest as opposed to down south where there's, there's more prospects, he ended up having, uh, as a baseball scout, more uh, major leaguers come out of his area. Uh, he picked accurately more often than, than just about any other scout. And they were talking about why he was so successful, and they were talking about the different, you know, some uh, folks just look for the negatives, and, and they're trying to find somebody with as few negatives as possible. Most scouts, most baseball scouts just kind of look at, okay, how well does this person do against the competition that they're in front of right now? But Tony was unusual because as he scouted, he would look for the, the core skills that they had, but also things like coachability and the ability to, to take their game to another level as they would go, of course they were playing against amateurs in college, as they would go up to the next level, what he saw is the ability for them to, to upgrade and be able to, to get to that next level. And he was, as I said, able to predict in that way at a level that almost nobody else uh, of his generation, as far as baseball scouts, was able to. And that made him in very high demand because predicting the future is incredibly difficult. As we look at our passage this morning, we want to look at a prophecy. We're predicting, or Jesus here is, is predicting or mentioning a scripture that had to do with predicting the future. We want to talk about that, and if you have your sermon outline, let's begin there this morning. Is it free will or predestined? And the answer is, we choose, but God is a master chess player. God is a master chess player. As we think about the, the times in the scripture, and this is one of them, as you can see in verse 18, it says there in the second half of it, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. And so you go all the way back to the Old Testament, and we're going to refer to another passage here in a second, but you go all the way back to the Old Testament, and hundreds of years before this incident happens, there is this prophecy that says, He who shared my bread has turned against me. And of course we know Jesus is at the table with Judas, and they're sharing that communion meal together, the Last Supper, and then Judas is going to turn against Jesus. And so the, the question becomes, as we think about that, okay, so we had this, this prophecy all these years ago, and now it comes to this moment, and it's, Jesus says, I'm not referring to all of you, speaking of the rest of the disciples, but I know those, or he says, I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. So the question is, what was, did, did Judas have free will, or was he forced to do that? As you look down at verse 24, it's interesting how, uh, it talks about these coming together. It says, Simon Peter motioned to this disciple, speaking of John, and said, ask him which one he means. 
leaning back against Jesus, he asked, Lord, who is it? Speaking of the one that's going to turn against Jesus. Verse 26, Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And so what we have here is this really interesting uh, situation where we know that there is, the, there is this prophecy coming from all the way back, and yet Judas here is not forced to do this, but rather he makes the free will choice to choose to do that. And so we have these two things coming together. Somebody described it once, as you think about free will and, and, and God's prophecy and things like that, it's kind of like if you imagine up above me there, there's a, 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 a wheel and you have ropes coming down on both sides of it, like a pulley or something, and as I'm hanging, if I was hanging on that, if I let go of one, the rope's going to go and I'm going to fall. If I let go of the other, the rope's going to go and I'm going to fall. It's only as you hold on to both of those that you're, you're able to, to continue to, to be there. And, and as we look at this passage this morning, we see um, that both God allows us to have free will, and yet also um, His work is being done. The, the analogy, to go back to the point, uh, is someone once said it's as though God is a master chess player. I, I'm a very mediocre chess player, and so if I sit down against the world's best player, I have the ability to, to make any move that I want, and yet within that, the other person, as skillful as he is, is going to be able to work the board to where he's going because I'm very mediocre. He's going to be able to bring about the result that he wants. And we see here with God that he is also able to bring about the result that he wants in order to be able to fulfill the prophecy. Now, as we think about that, there's a point that I want to make with regard to these prophecies that's important for us as we look toward our future. And it's going to be helpful. If you have your Bibles, let's go back to Matthew chapter 27 for a second. We're still going to talk about Judas, Matthew 27. But I want to look at a passage that's a lot more difficult um, than this prophecy uh, and, and talk about what we can learn from all the different things that happen just within this one prophecy. And we'll go from there in applying it to our own lives. So, Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 10. The, the prophecy that's mentioned, the fulfillment from the Old Testament, is going to be at the end. And we're going to go back through and, and talk about these, these different things. So, Matthew 27, 1. Again, we're talking about Judas. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, so this is later in the story, obviously, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use it to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. 
That is why it has, it has been called the field of blood to this day. Here's the prophecy part. Then what was fulfilled by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. What was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. All right, so let's unpack this for a second. Let me give you the, the point, and then we'll go, we'll go through the different verses. How many things in this passage, how many things had to go right for one prophecy to be fulfilled? And the answer is at least seven. At least seven things. So we're going to go down through here. At the end, in these last two verses, you, you'll note there that it says, then what was spoken by, the, by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. So, Hundreds of years before, Jeremiah the prophet speaks these words. He doesn't know anything about Jesus in terms of knowing what the, the mission of Jesus was going to be. But the Holy Spirit, all those hundreds of years before, spoke to him, and he wrote these words. And then you fast forward it to this situation, and we have the fulfillment of this hundreds of years later. Now remember, at this point, you know, because like if, if I said this morning, you know, okay, now I'm going to make a prediction that at the end of this sermon... Uh, I'm going to fall down the stairs. Well, I can, I can make that happen myself. I can cause that to happen. Jesus at this point is arrested. He, he doesn't have anything to do with what Judas is doing at this point. He doesn't have anything to do with what the high priests are doing at this point. And yet, look at all these things that happen in order to fulfill uh, this, this uh, prophecy. I had Joe throw him up there. Uh, number one, so first of all, Judas had to betray. As you look at verse 3, it says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, so to be able to get to what it says in 9 and 10 about them taking the, the silver, that can't happen if Judas says, you know what, I'm glad I betrayed him. I didn't want to have to, I don't think he should have been allowed to do these things. So if Judas holds on to the money, none of this happens. So first of all, Judas has to betray. Number two is that Judas had to be paid 30 pieces of silver. Again, still in verse 3, it talks there about the fact that he, was, he received 30 pieces of silver. As you go down to verse 9, they took the 30 pieces of silver. Silver. Remember, Jesus was not the one that negotiated this deal. Jesus could not have manipulated this. It was the chief priest talking to Judas who decided on 30 pieces of silver. That was something that was written down by Jeremiah the prophet hundreds of years before that. If they choose 25, the prophecy isn't fulfilled. If they choose 100, the prophecy isn't fulfilled. And yet they choose exactly the right amount to fulfill that prophecy. 30 pieces of silver. Number three, Judas had to regret the betrayal. As you look at three through five, it says, um, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest. So they don't get the, they don't get the silver back, again, not able to fulfill what was happening in 9 and 10, if, Jesus, if Judas doesn't choose to regret that betrayal and hand it back to them. Number four, is the hypocritical religious leaders had to partially obey. This is maybe the most interesting one. As you look at uh, verses 6 and 7, so the religious leaders, again, they are totally against Jesus. They have no desire to obey him. They have no interest in doing what he said at all. They have violated, this is a different statement, but they have violated the Old Testament law in what they are doing to Jesus. And that's a different sermon to talk about. But they are people who claim to be meticulous about following the law. And so they reject the law earlier in, in condemning Jesus the way that they did. It was against specific Old Testament commands. And yet here, 
Look at, uh, look at 6 and 7. In this moment, where for the prophecy to be fulfilled, they need to be meticulous about fulfilling the Old Testament law the way that they see it. Notice that these ones who a moment ago were willing to ignore the Old Testament law to get what they wanted, all of a sudden are the most scrupulous followers of the Old Testament law. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it is against the what? The law. All of a sudden, they're really concerned about the law. It is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. Again, going down to 9 and 10, when it talks about them uh, using the money in verse 10 to buy the potter's field. If, if the religious leaders perfectly obey the law, they don't condemn Jesus in the first place. If the religious leaders go in the complete opposite direction, then they're like, well, he gave us the money back. We don't need to follow the law. Here, you guys take the law. Let's just, or the money. Let's just split this money up and use it ourselves. But they don't. They partially obey. First they disobey, and then they're very meticulous. And in the meticulousness of it, they fulfill exactly what was prophesied years before by the prophet. Number five, there had to be a field available. So in order, as you look down at verses uh, 9 and 10, Again, it says in verse 10, they used it, they used the money, they used them, the 30 pieces of silver, to buy the potter's field. If there wasn't a field available, they couldn't have done that. Number six, it had to be owned by a potter. It, it, specifically in the Old Testament prophecy, look in verse 10, they used them to buy the potter's field. It could not have been a field owned by any uh, person of any other profession or it wouldn't have fulfilled the prophecy. And then verse seven, or number seven, I'm sorry, says it had to be the right price. And that, of course, is the 30 pieces of silver that show up in both places. And so the point I want to make here is, you know, like, um, it's, it's a given Sunday during the NFL season. If I look at three games, and I'm like, okay, I think the Raiders are going to win, the Packers are going to win, the Bengals are going to win, most of the time, I might get one of those right occasionally, too. On a good Sunday, I might get three. If, if you, know, you look at the NCAA tournament, and how you get to the end of it, and, and well, not even the end of it, we get to the beginning of it, and generally by the time the first round is gone, you know, there's almost no right brackets, and by the time you get to the sec- end of the second round, there are no right brackets. If somebody, year after year after year, if Bill Cook, for the last 10 years, had predicted all, 60, all the games uh, in, in March Madness, every single year for the last 10 years, we would say that he had a gift from God to be able to know that. And here we have, going back several hundred years, a prophecy that was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet that required at least seven things to happen a few hundred years later. And now we fast forward these few hundred years, Jesus in a situation where he can't manipulate it to make it happen. And all seven things happen. What's that mean? It means this was powered by God. This was powered by God. Now, what do we do with that? Well, that's the next thing we need to talk about. Why does God do this? And the answer is, to give, it gives us confidence that this is from God. It gives us confidence that this is from God. Let's go back to verse, or John chapter 13, and let's read verse 19. We read verse 18 a moment ago. 19 is really important for understanding what he's trying to get at. So John 13 again, look at verse 18. We just read this. It had the prophecy in there. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill 
this passage of Scripture, he who shared my bread has turned against me. So we talked about how that was a fulfillment of prophecy. Look at what Jesus says in verse 19. This is important for us applying it today. I am telling you now, before it happens, so that when it happens, you will believe that I am who I am. What good, is this like an impressive parlor trick that Jesus, uh, that the Bible can predict these things from several hundred years back and go look forward and see them happen? Is it just supposed to be, you know, just a nice trick, that was really impressive. No, Jesus here tells them, listen, verse 18, it hadn't happened yet. Remember Judas, we read a moment ago, it's going to be in a minute, Judas is going to betray. Judas hasn't betrayed at this point. And Jesus says, he who shared my bread has turned against me. And then Jesus tells him, listen, I'm telling you this now. So that when it happens, because what would normally happen? Things start going off the rails. We're like, well, I thought Jesus knew what he was doing, but clearly Jesus doesn't know what he's doing because look, he's getting betrayed and he just got arrested. And, but all that was part of the plan, wasn't it? All that was part of what was supposed to happen. And so Jesus tells them, I am telling you now before it happens so that when it, ha- when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. When we look at the Scripture and we see how these things were predicted ahead of time, it gives us confidence to know that Jesus Christ is who He said He was. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that only God can predict things that are going to happen a few hundred years later, not just once or twice, but dozens of times and have them come perfectly true. Only God can do that, amen? Only God can bring about those things. And so that gives us confidence as Jesus tells them here, listen, I know some bad stuff is going to happen, and I know it's going to look bad, but as we get to the end of this, I want you to know, I'm telling you this ahead of time, I'm calling all these shots so that you know I am who I am. I am Jesus Christ. I told you I was the Son of God. I told you I was the Prince of Peace. I told you I was the Son of the Father. All those things are true, and I'm telling you now, so that you will know when those things happen in the future that I am who I am. And so therefore, as we look at these prophecies and the fulfillment of them, it gives us confidence to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, so we think about that, and we say, okay, so I I get all that, but what does that do uh, for, for my spiritual life? Well, there's two things, and I'll talk about the second in, in a moment. First of all, if you're here this morning, let me talk to you for a moment. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. So if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, one of the things you need to factor into your, your, um, your calculations on whether you want to become a Christian is this. Um, a bunch of stuff was written by these guys several hundred years before, and then Jesus Christ came to the earth and perfectly fulfilled them. So there's one of two things going on there. Either one, Jesus Christ was the Son of God who came into the world and everything that he did was empowered by the Father. Or he was the luckiest human being that ever lived. Because to have all those things happen, there's no chance of that. One in a gazillion. Or it was God the Father who brought all those things about perfectly as they were prophesied. But there's another thing too. For those of us that are Christians, so for those that aren't Christians, we need to stop, they need to stop and think about, okay, well, it sure sounds like Jesus is who he said he is, so maybe I need to consider inviting him into my life. 
for those of us that are Christians, sometimes um, as we look to our future, we try to direct our own paths. And I want to look over as we close in Revelation, the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21. I just want to make a quick point. Revelation 21. Let me give you the point in the outline, and then I want to unpack Revelation 21 and 22. So the last thing I want to say is this, how I live. Will I live my life believing the prophecy that hasn't happened yet? Will I live my life believing the prophecy that hasn't happened yet? So it is incredibly impressive and should speak to our hearts to look back and say, look how Jesus fulfilled all these things. And that is what should cause us, and that's the point I want to make for you that aren't Christians this morning, that should cause us to say, I want Jesus. He clearly is a man unlike any other man. For those of us that are Christians and we look toward the future, how should I live my life? Well, Revelation 21 and 22 are the end of the Bible, and they are predictions. They aren't just pretty words. They're predictions of what's going to come. They are prophecies that haven't been fulfilled yet. Let's just look... um, Revelation 21.1. This is right after final judgment. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Can I get an amen? So that hasn't happened yet. We still cry. We still mourn. But I believe this morning, just as I'm confident in looking back and saying, okay, Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies, now as I look forward, I have confidence that just as all those prophecies that were predicted came true in Jesus as I look forward. This hasn't happened yet, but the Bible tells me this is going to happen. And so what I need to understand is as I live my life, what matters most, the stuff of this world or something else? Well, here's a prophecy that tells me where I'm going to be. There's going to come a point in the future where the, everything about this earth is going to be burned away. The old earth is going to be gone. The only thing that's going to last past it is the kingdom of God and human beings. And so as we look toward that, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and a new Jerusalem, and I'm going to get to dwell with God in that place, and He's going to be my God, and I'm going to be His servant, and I'm going to be able to be with Him forever, and in that place, death's going to be gone, and crying's going to be gone, and mourning's going to be gone, and it will be a new world. If I believe that that's a prophecy, and that that's true, knowing that that is where I'm going to be someday, shouldn't that impact the way that I live my life today? Like, why should I be concerned about if I, if I make a million dollars in this world? Who cares? All that's going to be burned away. I need to concentrate on Jesus Christ. Because my destiny, because where I'm going to be, is to be with God the Father someday. There's going to be a new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, and I want to be a part of that. And not just be a part of that, but I want to have lived my life now with the understanding that that is where I'm going to end up. And so as Christians this morning, as we look toward the prophecies that are yet to come, we need to stop and say, Okay, if I believe these old prophecies were fulfilled, and then I believe that these new prophecies are going to be fulfilled, I need to live my life in a way where when that does uh, come to fulfillment, 
I've lived my life knowing that I was ready for that fulfillment. I don't want to live my life for things that are shallow and earthly and temporary. I want to live for the things that are eternal and that will make a difference in the new Jerusalem someday. So, this morning, even as we believe what has happened, are we living in a way where we're ready for what's going to happen? Father, we thank you this morning for the amazing proof and confidence builder that you give us in the fulfilled prophecy. Father, I pray as we think about that for our future, that we would live in such a way that we live believing that those things will happen. I pray in Jesus' name. And amen.